Good morning, and good morning to those of you who are in Renew. Welcome to worship this morning. We're working our way through a favorite letter in the New Testament, a letter written by Paul, the man God chose to lead the Jesus movement out of the cradle of Judaism to take it global across all barriers, culture, geography, social barriers, a, a, a book written to a church that was the first one in the Western world, in the city of Philippi, and a church, the start of which crossed a lot of those barriers. It was, it was started with a businesswoman, a jailer, and a slave girl. And this book is all about something that in our hearts we long for, unlimited. How the gospel, the, the good news of how the limitless God, who in his unlimited power and love, limited himself in Jesus to bring us into the realm of life unlimited. And how that gospel is the key to, to living in, through, and sometimes breaking through some of those things that we often see as limiting us, as frustrating us, making us want to give up or beat ourselves up. It's what makes life in Jesus different from religion. This morning from chapter 2 of Philippians, we'll address head-on a misconception we have when we think of this thing about unlimited. How many of us have ever said, I must be doing something wrong, it's not getting any easier? How many of us have said that about life with God, about life as a family in God? Actually, there, there are two ditches we get into with regard to what we're going to talk about today. One is the it's too hard ditch. It's not getting any easier. A number of years ago, there was this slogan, uh, we've got to learn to work smarter, not harder. Really? Why not work smarter so you can work hard? So you can work harder longer. Some of us this morning on the edge of the cliff, simply because we're saying, it's too hard. I can't do this anymore. But what if life was not meant to be easy? What if it was meant to be doable? What if that's what God wanted us for us? What he wants to be for us in it? By the way, if it, if it was easy, why would we need him, right? The other ditch is, I just need to try harder. I know, I, I just have to try harder. I got to suck it up. I got to push through. I got to be better. Well, okay, m maybe that's part of it. Your trainer will never stop you from putting in a little bit more effort, will she? Well, at least that's what I thought until I went to a trainer. And one of the big things he did was to say, you know, it's not just about trying harder. No, it's not about not trying hard because, well... The problem is that one word. It's just about trying harder. Now you're in the ditch on the other side of the road. That's, that's the ditch I tend to end up in, by the way. And that is what some of us hear when we come to church, right? Do this, do that, just work a little bit harder, be a little bit better. You see, when, when we think of this idea of unlimited, we think about, about that eagle, Soaring in the sky that we lay on the ground watching. Well, that's what I did as a kid. I'd get into a mood about life at home and 
I would go out into the field about 50 or 30 meters in front of our house, and I'd just lay down in the tall grass where nobody could see me, and I'd look up, and I'd watch that eagle soar. And I would dream that at some point, at some point, when I, perhaps when I finished school, when I reached a certain age, when I could get out on my own, at some point, I will be able to soar like that eagle, effortlessly, freely, not limited by gravity, by demands, by rules. And when we get there, where we think that should happen, it doesn't happen. And what do we do? We blame our environment, the job, our marriage, our boss, or we give up and we just go through that cycle again. So let's, let's think about soaring for just a minute here. Effortlessly, freely. Soaring is not free like we think free, right? It's very much limited by the constraints of the currents. It's dependent on wing position. Soaring is not effortless. An eagle's wings are, are not in a relaxed posture at all. Soaring takes energy. It's a lot of work. And think about the energy it takes to get to the place to be able to soar. Soaring is not a, a, a no-mind activity. If you want to catch the currents, you have to know and think and anticipate. It can become more natural as it is for the eagle, but it's not easy. And soaring for the eagle is all, all about what? Pursuing. Looking for prey. That will require a lot of work and finesse to get. You see, I, I wonder if our problem is not that we confuse soaring with cruising or coasting. Yes, God wants you to soar. To be able to soar, to rise up on wings like the eagle, as it says in Isaiah. To not be limited by the things that we allow to limit us. But that does not mean it's simply going to be coasting. And today, as we continue in Philippians chapter 2, turn, turn in your Bible or uh, pull out a Bible app on your smartphone, turn to the book of Philippians chapter 2 in the New Testament section of the Bible. We're going to see some things about soaring, not coasting, but soaring, giving ourselves to the work of being able to soar, being in Jesus who God created us to be, about how to work smarter so we can do the hard work that God calls us to do. We're going to begin in verse 12 of chapter 2 where Paul takes us a little deeper into, into two key statements that he's made already in this book. So let's, let's backtrack just a bit to get the flow of it. Chapter 1 verse 27, which is where the section we are in begins, gives us the, the key command or the key theme of this section. Conduct yourselves together in the family of Jesus. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. That's what he's talking about in this whole section. And further back to chapter 1, verse 6, he brings up a word initially that we're going to talk about today. Being confident of this, that he who began a good what? A good work in you will carry it on to completion, that work, until the day of Jesus Christ. So, let's look, as a background, to 
Philippians 2, verses 12 to 13, beginning of verse 12, or 12 to 18. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but how much, now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in, according, in order to fulfill his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may be blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. But even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with all of you So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. We're going to make two points today. We're going to speak to two questions. Number one, how is it that through God, through the gospel, I can work smarter in order to work harder and live the life unlimited that I was designed to live, to soar and not just coast? How can I do that? And then number two, what are some of the, the key indicators, the, the markers or measures that I'm actually living this way? So number one, how to work smarter so you can work harder. If you get involved in any kind of coaching relationship or a development plan for your personal development, the number one thing you'll learn is that you need to own your own development, Okay. Part of owning your development spiritually is to know what it is that I am responsible before God for and what I'm not responsible for, what I need to do and what it is that God has done and is doing. When it comes to this idea of of working, one of the big things that overwhelms us is what? The word everything. I can't do everything, right? That's what we say. I just can't do everything it all. Here's the good news. You're not responsible for everything. And no, it's not all up to you. What is the work I am responsible for in my development with Jesus? Well, therefore, my dear friends, as you have always, what? Obeyed. Not only my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. What's working out your salvation? Simply obeying. That's all I'm responsible for. Just obey. If there is a God, I live under God. I will be accountable to God. Accountable to obey. If God is good, then the things that he requires for me are good. And he's very clear all through Scripture That obedience is primarily obedience to the commands of the word, right? Psalm 119 is all about how obedience to the word is good for us, is delightful. In in another letter, uh, actually in his last letter that he wrote, uh, the book of 2 Timothy, Paul puts it this way. All scripture is God-breathed. It's breathed out from God. God didn't breathe into it. It came out of his mind, into the minds of the authors. And it is useful for what? For teaching. It shows us the road, the things to obey. 
It's useful for rebuking. It points out where we've gone off the road. It's useful for correcting. It, it helps us to come back on the road. And it's useful for training in righteousness. For helping us how to know or to know how to stay on the road. If, if, if we are to have the mindset of Jesus, as Paul has told us uh, just a few verses earlier, what was the number one thing about Jesus' mindset? Obedience to the Father. Just take a look at a few verses in the book of John. Jesus says, my food, what, what fills my tank is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. It's obedience. Chapter 6, I have come down from heaven not to do what I want to do, but the will of him who sent me. John chapter 15, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. How? Obey. If you keep my commands, you'll remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. You are my friends if you obey, if you do what I command. How obedient was Jesus? Well, just a few verses earlier, verse 8, he became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Not because he had good feelings about us, but because this was the will of the Father, and he delighted to do the Father's will, which in the end exalted him, and in him exalts us. Jesus obedience. Now parents, one of the things you do as a good parent to help your child learn to to develop and grow, learn to take on life is, well, on Saturday, before you go out and do the shopping for the week, you leave a note in the kitchen counter with some very specific instructions that you expect your child to obey, right? And the note says this, I will be gone and back around 2 o'clock. Please clean your room before I come home, and then we can go out and shop for the dance shoes that you need next week. Been there, right? You may even, because you've been here before, you may even define more clearly once again the expectations of what a clean room looks like. The bed is made. The floor is clear. And vacuumed. The room is dusted. The dresser top is neat. And the clothes are in the closets and the drawers. Don't have to be organized. Just have to be behind those doors and behind the... Right? It's definable. It's doable. You may even, in that note, put a little P.S. Giving a good reason. Remember, Uncle Bob and Aunt Sally are coming tomorrow and they will be staying in your room for the night. Clear? Good reason? You leave, you come home, and you do an inspection. The floor is still messy. The bed is unmade. Clothes are still scattered all over the place. And you take a deep breath and you say, what did you do? And the response you are expecting, because you have heard it before, is, oh, well, I was going to do it, but I just, I was tired. I watched some TV first, and I, I just never got to it. Right? Coasting. Definitely not soaring. 
and you're ready for your own response, remember, good intentions are not good enough. But that's not the response you got. What you got was, well, at first it was surprising, but as you thought about it, it was equally disappointing and perhaps even more dangerous. When you said, what did you do with that well-rehearsed hurt and almost righteous tone of voice, the response was, Mom, I worked hard the whole time. I was working. Oh, tell me about it. Well, can't you smell the nice smell in the kitchen? I baked some biscuits, Mom, because I know Auntie Sally loves biscuits. I cleaned my computer hard drive because Uncle Bob always wants to use the computer when he comes here. He has work to do. She worked all right. But what is she working at? She's working at things that she thinks will make her look like a rock star to Uncle Bob and Auntie Sally. Not realizing that what Uncle Bob and Auntie Sally would appreciate most is a clean room. (laughs) And not realizing that on obeying Mom, she'd be giving Mom an opportunity to praise her to Uncle Bob and Aunt Sally to make her look good. Mom was actually looking forward to saying proudly to her sister, you know, I, I didn't have time to clean your room, so she did it. I hope it's okay. You see, yes, obedience is work. And it's not the work we sometimes feel like doing. But the work God calls us to do in development is work that actually will make us look good. Jeremiah chapter 15, verse 16. I remember as a college student as I was I was wanting to I was wanting to develop and grow and I was learning more about God's word and I came across this statement in Jeremiah chapter 15 your words were found and I ate them and your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart for I am called by your name O Lord God of hosts this God's word, knowing and doing God's word, is it a delight to you? That's what it it takes. That's the work God calls us to do. Hold it. We went from saying that you're not responsible for everything, but God wants nothing less than complete obedience. How does that decrease the load? If that's what we're thinking, we are still in that realm called religion. Maybe not ritualistic rules, but it's certainly a a legalistic relationship, right? So what's the difference? Is there a difference between what Christians call gospel and, and other religions? The difference is what God does to make my work doable. The work God has done and is doing to make my work doable you know, it's, it's fashion, fashionable to say today that all religions are basically the same. I hear that line all the time. Now, it's fair to say, I think, that all religions basically speak to the same issues. That's fair. But 
It's totally inaccurate to say they are all the same. A number of years ago, there was a, a British academic uh, conference on comparative religions. Experts from all over the world were there, and at, at one point, a number of them were together, uh, I think it was in a pub, debating what, if anything, was unique about Christian faith relative to all other religions. Was it the idea of God becoming a man? Well, maybe, but, but other religions had at least some variations on that. Even the Greek myths were about gods appearing in human form. It wasn't the same, but, you know, there are some parallels. Was it heaven, life after death, an eternal soul? Was it love for one's neighbor, good works, caring for the poor? Was it about sin and judgment? My understanding is that the debate went on for some time until a man by the name of C.S. Lewis walked into the room. Lewis himself had journeyed from atheism to agnosticism to Christianity, and, and he became one of the most famous of all Christian thinkers and writers from his position as a professor at Oxford and then later at Cambridge University. And when they told him what the debate was about, he said, well, that's easy. It's grace. And after listening about it and thinking about it and talking about it for a while, every one of them agreed. You see, although a few religions have some concept of mercy, only Christianity is based on, founded on the grace of God. Grace alone is the foundation. Grace which means something given, not earned, something granted, not deserved. Gift, not grasp. Grace, not works. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, which is actually a very parallel sec- uh, b- b- a statement to what Paul says here in Philippians 2, 12 and 13. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not from yourself, it's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can think it was all about them. Grace, given freely, totally undeserved. That's what the gospel is. There there is nothing I can do to earn my relationship with God. Jesus did it all. Jesus paid it all. One of the lines I sometimes hear, well, that just doesn't make sense, that How could a God become man? How would a God become man? And why would he do something like this? Why would God sacrifice his son? What kind of God is that? Folks, on a a day like today, you better not be saying that. Because on a Remembrance Day weekend, we realize that even humans do something like that for each other. Would a God whose love is complete not be willing to do that? Friends, if you have not yet realized what God in Jesus has done for you and how he has claimed you as his own, and if you have not allowed him to claim you as your Savior and your Lord, which basically means your your one true and total lover who sacrificed himself to rescue you, And you're one rightful and ultimate leader. That's what God wants to hear from you today. It's, it's not doing anything to earn that. It's simply saying, wow, I received that. 
And the way he puts it in Philippians then is continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling because it is God who works in you to will and to act according to fulfill his good purpose. There are three things that God does to make the work that he calls me to do in my development and growing in him to make it doable. Number one, his work that we've talked about in the gospel frees me from the burden and the load of thinking that I am working to get his approval. The load of thinking that I have to do it all. The burden of thinking that I am working to get some kind of status in him. Folks, you are in. As we saw a couple weeks ago, you're a saint in God's eyes, in Christ Jesus. You are a citizen with a citizenship that can't be taken away. And Romans chapter 8 verse 1 says, there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. So does that mean I can do anything I want? Well, it's like saying after I'm married, well, I got the paper, got the ring, got that covered, now I can sleep with whoever I want. No. Because I'm in does not mean I'm free from work. What it means is that now I am free to work. Jesus did the work I could not do, so I am free to do the work he's called me to do in obedience. I don't have the load, the weight, the pressure of working for my salvation. I am now free to work from my salvation on my salvation, to work at it, to work with it, to work it out. It's, it's still work because, well, I love the way James Emery White puts it when he talks about this. He says, you, you can't unleash the power of prayer without praying. Praying is work. You can't be guided by the truth of God without reading it and thinking about it and absorbing it. That's work. You can't be filled with the presence of God's Spirit apart, apart from creating space in your life for, for silence and solitude and confession and openness. You can't be challenged by godly men and women without being in a relationship with godly men and women. You can't be filled with the Spirit of God without keeping in step with the Spirit of God by developing the fruit of the Spirit of God in our lives. You see, you can't demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit, which, which includes self-control, if you're embracing a life of, you name it, sexual immorality, relational discord, jealousy, anger, selfish ambition. Folks, just because we don't have to work for our salvation does not mean we don't need to work at our salvation. Work hard at it. What it means is that we can work with what we have to become in our experience and our character what we are in our position. That's on us. And that work is lifetime work. God wants us to take it seriously. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Basically, that's just a metaphor, meaning we got to take it very seriously because God is taking it seriously. So let's pause there and just ask a question. Can you identify some things that you've been hiding, denying, ways that you've been faking, possibly flaunting, things you've been justifying because to own them just seems too hard. You've been working hard to prove you're okay when you need to say, no, I am not okay, but I am forgiven and that means I need to be transparent about this issue with somebody. 
and start doing the work of becoming who God called me to be. Because he's made it doable. But it gets even better than that. And that's where verse 13 picks up. Not only does God do the work for our salvation that we can work from salvation, God also works in us. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. What's the second way God works in us? He works in us to make us willing. He makes us want to act to fulfill his purpose. That word willing just simply means to be willing, to to want to, to increase our desire to want to please him, to want to live up to what he has given us. You can't change your desires, but God can. Or actually, more likely, what God does is he gives you a greater desire than the desire that controls you. Before I was married, I was living out in central Canada and got together with LaDonna, largely through letters and stuff like that. And and she came 5,000 miles from family and friends, resigned from her job to come and be with me. And when I was single as a youth pastor, I did two things. Number one, I um, was a youth pastor, threw myself into that. Number two, I played basketball in a men's league two nights a week. Well, on Saturday morning, I always gave myself four hours to clean my apartment and do my laundry, get ready for the next week. The rest was work and play basketball. When I got married and my wonderful wife moved 5,000 kilometers to be with me and me alone, I, I realized something had to go. I wasn't about to do anything less than the work God called me to do, and so I decided that in order to show my wife I loved her more than anything else except Jesus, I I gave up basketball. Totally. Cold turkey. Quit. Was it because I stopped loving basketball? No. It wasn't about stopping loving basketball. It was about a, a love that I got that was greater than basketball. God does that. He works in you to to will, to create a desire, a love. To to help you have such a great love for him, a great want to, to know him, please him. It'll become greater, more dominant than the desire that you desire most. You see, desire is a weird thing. We, We tend to think of desire as sort of a fixed amount thing, right? like a thousand liters or whatever. And we think that in order to love God more, we have to love something else less. No, God increases our capacity to desire. Yes, we will love that less than God, but God will increase our desire to love him. So You see, the point of all is this. Some of us have been saying, I can't obey God because I can't release, I can't get low of, uh, let go of my desire in some area of my disobedience to God. Some of us use the dumb logic in our thinking, well, if God wants me to do something differently, he'll keep me from wanting this. That's not obedience. He probably won't. What he will do over time is he will give us the want to, to love him more than those things that displease him. Those desires often only fade very, very slowly over time. But the point is not how great those desires is. The point is that you can have a greater desire 
and love for God. Perhaps the prayer that some of us need to pray today is, Lord, in light of the overwhelming greatness of your love, the unbelievable cost of your grace to me, I will make it more important to please you than to please and fulfill myself. Help me to love you more. God may never take away a desire, but he will give you a greater desire to love him and to please him. That's a key step in this journey of of working smarter. Number three, God's work in you involves one more thing. For it's God who works in you to will, to want to, and to do, to act in accordance with his good purpose. God's spirit empowers us to not act on the things that we know are against his will and his word and, and to act in obedience. Does that mean it's easy, just cruising? No, it's hard. It's sweating bullets hard. Just like it was hard for Jesus to go to the cross to do his work for you. But what was his prayer? Lord, if it's possible to take this cup from me, please. But if that's not your will, so be it. I want your will more than my desire. And what God gives us is his spirit of empowerment to do the right thing. Here's the point. Every single must-do God gives comes with an equal want-to and a can-do that he will also give. That's what growing as a follower of Jesus is all about. Growing in a love for God that just makes all other loves less. Growing in a trust in God that as I step out in obedience, he will give me the strength to obey as I obey. LaDonna and I have made several decisions over the years that we both sensed. We made them in agreement since God wanted us to make, well, a lot more, more than several, actually, but a number of those decisions have not turned out the way they thought we, would, we thought they would. Some have involved a lot of pain, a lot of hurt, a lot of cost, a lot of hard work without achieving the results we thought they were supposed to achieve. Several years back, we were reflecting on one of those decisions, and LaDonna said to me, Would you make the same decision today if you knew then what you know now? I said to her, well, you know, I generally don't look back and second-guess decisions unless I need to in order to make another decision. But obviously, you've been thinking about it. (laughs) Would you? And she said, yes, I think I would. Because I would not want to be the person... I would have been without the development in my life that that tough decision happened. Part of knowing how it would turn out is knowing what it would do in my own development. She was talking about things like perseverance, character, Jesus-like sacrificial love. I asked her at that time if I could share that story, and she said yes, and that's been such a theme in my thinking the last while, she said, I've taken it a step further. Here's what she did. She said, I made a spreadsheet with four columns. Number one, the things in my life that haven't turned out like I thought they would or wished they had. Number two, how I have developed through them. Number three, what other ways I could have developed through them if I was really thinking about what God was trying to do in me. And number four, what other ways God still might want to be developing me through those decisions? 
That, my friends, is taking this business of working out our salvation seriously. Looking at the work God has given us to do in light of the results he wants us to achieve in me through it, his purpose. Inviting God to give me the want to and trusting he will give me the can do to obey. I don't know about you, but I still have some work to do. Very quickly, we've got three, three things that are indicators that we are working well at our salvation. Of course, he'd bring up his big concern in this whole section of working it out, wouldn't he? Do nothing out of selfish ambition. Verse 3, verse 45, in humility considers uh, others above yourself. He picks up on that here in verse 14. Do everything without grumbling. It means talking negatively about people behind their backs, or actually in this context, probably about God. Do everything without grumbling and complaining or arguing fighting with somebody, complaining about somebody, fighting with somebody, so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. You know, when we think of sins that take us out, what do we think about? We, we might tend to think about some, some sins of the flesh, sexual sins, some sins of, of violating property like stealing or some sins of, of, of cheating on exams. But what is Paul's concern He's concerned just about sins of the spirit, selfish ambition, complaining, grumbling, arguing. We fight with God and each other for a status that he's already given us because of our nobody likes me, nobody looks at me, nobody listens to me, nobody lets me thinking. So let it go. Would you? Forgive for Jesus' sake. Stop complaining, grumbling, arguing. Selfishness hurts everyone. Number two, or so the first sign, actually is what we would call grace-filled relationships. Matching in our relationship the grace that God has given us in Jesus. Number two, verse 15, then you will shine among them in this world like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to this word of life. The word which brings life and the word which allows us to develop in life. Holding firmly to it, knowing it, believing it, obeying it, letting the promise of the gospel empower you to obey and let go of your own selfish needs, which means letting go of the need to be a rock star where everybody says, look at them. And when you do that, you'll become something even better, a shining star for people to see. Not you, but the light and the love of Jesus in and through you. Folks, you can actually be the star you really want to be underneath that selfishness, behind that desire that people will look at you, listen to you, and like you, and let you. Buried underneath that selfish desire because you were created as the image of God, Buried underneath that is the desire to be the light and love of truth of God in whatever darkness God has allowed you to be plunked into. Do you want to be a rock star being seen? Or do you want to be a shining star so people can see Jesus through you? Number three, when you're able to sacrifice joyfully for the one who gave you his life. What Paul's saying in this next passage about sacrifice is, is that, hey, I can suffer with joy because I see you embracing the gospel. Why don't you joy, joy, be joyful with me? Yes, it will cost. 
Yes, it is hard. Yes, it will hurt. But when we really appreciate the work God has done for us and give ourselves to working in light of that work for his purpose, even suffering will be considered an honor, an occasion for joy. Because Jesus can shine. Folks, if you're going to hurt, hurt with a purpose, right? Why work hard? Well, Jim Elliott, a missionary who himself was murdered in Ecuador, wrote this in his journal earlier. He is no fool who gives away what he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. Just makes sense. So go, counting on the work God has done for you and is doing for for you. Work smarter so that you can work harder for him, which will ultimately lead to your glory. Why work hard? Nicky Gumbel puts it this way. Because it's possible to have a saved soul and yet a wasted life. I don't want my work wasted to you. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your work for us and in us. And Father, as we give ourselves to cooperate with your work in our life and own our own development in you. We thank you that you will give us the desire to do your will and that you will grant us a life that is a shining star pointing to Jesus, the Savior of the world. We love you. Thank you for loving us in Jesus' name. Amen.